Well, hey there, this is Pastor Zach, and I want to thank you for listening to our church podcast today. I hope that this message encourages you and inspires you in your faith. I hope it motivates you to be a son and daughter of the King who live a lifestyle of encountering Jesus because He is the bread of life, the life that makes life worth living, and that you would practice His ways, that you might grow like an oak tree, like a majestic oak tree, as Isaiah 61 says, that you would join with us in building His kingdom, uh, that it may be on earth as it is in heaven. Today is a little bit different format than normal. Normal, our podcast are the recordings of our Sunday sermon. Today, I want to speak with you in a conversational way uh, a bit. We were going to address a particular topic that we've come across in the Gospel of Luke, and that is how do you reconcile a God of love with a God who destroys cities or supposedly destroys cities? How do you balance those two things? Uh, we went a little bit of a different direction on Sunday, and so this is just a follow-up uh, speaking into that topic and into that message. The text that we're in is Luke chapter 10, and we're going to be starting in verse 10. We're going to read through verse 15, and then we're just going to talk about this. So this is Jesus speaking. The context is he's, he is preparing his disciples to go out and to uh, proclaim the message of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God has come near to heal the sick, to make disciples. Um, and this is what he tells them about people that reject them, that don't respond to the message. And he says this, But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for you. And here when he's referencing Sodom, he's referencing a town in the Old Testament that was known for its sinfulness and its iniquity. Verse 13, he says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. And so he takes two uh, towns or areas where uh, he had ministered, and where miracles had been done, Chorazin and Bethsaida. And these towns had a reputation for being God-honoring, God-fearing, uh, godly people in the towns, and yet they had been unresponsive to the message of Jesus, even though uh, many miracles had been performed there. And he says, if, if the miracles that happened in your town had happened in Tyre and Sidon, those were two towns known for their ungodliness. Uh, you might think, kind of in their day, like a Las Vegas type town, a town with a reputation, uh, if those miracles had happened in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Verse 14, but it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? Capernaum was another town that Jesus had ministered in. And they had a, scholars believe this was a motto uh, that they had about their town had been lifted up to the heavens, that it was a, a godly place. And Jesus saying, no, 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 you're actually, you will go down to Hades. And so we see here, we've seen through the Gospels, Jesus preaching 
a message of love, talking about loving your enemies, talking about serving people. He's healing the sick. He, he's bringing in the outsider. Like He's demonstrating the love of God uh, before us in Jesus. Jesus is God with us, come to show us God's love. And he's doing that. And then here we come across uh, this, this phrase, this teaching, this saying of Jesus, where it, it seems like he's talking about uh, maybe the opposite of love. He's talking about places being destroyed. Uh, he's talking about places being judged. He's, t- he's criticizing, even condemning um, these different places. And, and, and when you read this, you can be like, man, that sounds like harsh or fickle or like, are you just kind of like some rage monster? Like, what did they really do that deserved you to kind of go off on them? You, you might have had that uh, you might have had that thought or asked yourself that question. If you have, you wouldn't be alone. I want to read to you a quote from uh, someone who people consider maybe the world's leading atheist. He's at Oxford University. His name is Richard Dawkins. And here in this quote, he's talking about his understanding of the Old Testament, the, the Old Testament part of Scripture and he's talking about an image of God that he believes the Old Testament portrays. It's very similar in theme to what we're reading here and this kind of idea of God being uh, judgmental or being angry. And here's what Dawkins said. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. He's jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, I don't even know how to say that word, uh, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Wow, what a statement about uh, God in the Old Testament. And it's drawn from stories like what we're reading here in the New Testament of God bringing judgment on people. So what do we have here, really? Do we have a malevolent bully? Do we have an unforgiving control freak? Do we have a God who is petty? Do we have a God who is like Hulk, where he's kind of mild-mannered one minute, and then if you set him off, he just explodes in rage? I wonder, have you ever read a passage of Scripture like the one we just read and at least had that thought, wondered about that? I, I bet you have. Uh, and I'd like to dig into that question today or that understanding today. And I want to ask, is what is really going on here? Jesus being harsh, capricious, and ready to blast a city in a Rambo-like rage? Or is there more to the story. The first place that I want to speak with you is on the topic of judgment. We live in a culture, we live in a generation where we fear judgment. We fear being judgmental. We fear being judged. We, we shy away from uh, those things and we don't know what to do with it. And so when we see God acting as a judge, uh, we feel a level of anxiety or we feel a level of discomfort with that concept. 
When we're talking about a judge, it means some people are right and some people are wrong. Some actions are right and some actions are wrong. And that can make us feel nervous. That can make us feel uh, anxious. That can make us feel apprehensive. But at the same time, if you dig a little bit deeper, and this is across people, across nations, across generations, we all have a longing for justice. We may define justice in different terms. We may disagree on what true justice is, but there's something inside of us that rails against things being unfair and wants things to be fair, to be right, to be in order. There are certain things that we believe are wrong and we feel like they should be stopped. And there are other things we think are right and they should be encouraged and cultivated. And so we, we long for these things, and the truth of the matter is there, there cannot be justice without a judge. There has to be a judge that establishes justice. There has to be a standard of justice, and there has to be someone uh, measuring, assessing, defining if people are meeting that standard. We, if we don't have that, if we shy away from that, we lose any hope for justice in our world. Now, again, we may disagree over what true justice is. We may have different perspectives on that. But when we really think about it, we know and we even long for, we see the goodness in having a judge and the goodness in having standards. question that we have, though, is, well, it may be good to have a judge, but is the judge good? Is the judge just? Is he or she corrupt? Are they manipulative? Do they have biases that they come to the table with, influence their their, uh, verdicts? Are they a good judge? Do they have wisdom or are they corrupt? So maybe our bigger fear is not that there's judgment, but that the judge is not good. What I want to point out to you, though, when we see God, when we see the God that Jesus presents to us, the God of Scripture, what we see is a God who created the world, created you and me, and created life to flow in a particular direction. Life flows in the direction of love. Life flows in the direction of generosity. Life flows in the direction of beauty. Life flows in the direction of of truth. Life flows in the direction of justice. Life flows. When you, when you do those things, when people treat each other that way, life flows. Life happens. Things prosper. Relationships prosper. The planet prospers. And when you go against those things, rather than prosperity, what is unleashed is destruction and death. Imagine a large sheet of wood Uh, that you're familiar with the idea of the grain of the wood. And if you run your hand going with the grain, it's a smooth experience. If you run your hand going against the grain, you're going to find splinters. And God has set it up in such a way that He has set up the world and He set up life to run with the grain of love, to run with the grain of goodness, to run with the grain of truth and beauty and justice, and righteousness, and mercy. And when we go against that, we encounter the splinters. Uh, We are splintered. 
And so what I hope you're seeing is that the God of the Bible is not just a judge who brings judgment, but He is a good judge who judges in such a way that things that bring life are encouraged, things that bring honor are encouraged, things that bring hope are encouraged, things that bring death and destruction and dismay, those things He is saying, He is committed to, the Bible tells us, putting an end to those things, that injustice and oppression one day would be fully and completely put to an end. I like to think about this as a, as a parent when I'm thinking about my kids. If someone was bringing harm to them, was out to get them, was destroying them, I, as a good father, would take action to put an end to that. If I didn't, you'd say, you're not a good father, right? God is a, a great father. And he's seen the things that destroy our lives and destroy relationships and destroy families and generations and cities. And he is committed to putting a stop to that. He is committed to bring judgment on those things. And so what we're seeing is that we really do, there is goodness in having a judge. We have a really good judge. And those two items frame our understanding of this passage of Scripture. And what I want to point out to you is that as we look at this passage of Scripture, we see the effects of sin in our lives and in our world. We see what sin does to lives. When Jesus is speaking here, I would argue that he's not talking about uh, actively bringing judgment on a particular town or city. But I believe that he's speaking a warning, much like a father or mother would speak a warning to a child. Don't run in the street. Don't uh, do drugs. Don't smoke cigarettes. Those things that will destroy you. Don't hang out with that crowd. He's issuing a warning that if not heeded, will lead to his children's destruction. And the reason that I submit that to you, the reason that I share that to you, is because of what happened in history, in this particular region, to this particular people. So rather than a harsh, unloving rage monster, what I want to show you is that this is a loving father reaching out with a word of warning to a child who is headed toward destruction. As I shared with you a few weeks ago, in the days of Jesus, what was referred to as Israel in the Old Testament had been broken up time and time and time again. They were currently under Roman rule and occupation. They didn't want this, and they desperately wanted to break free of Roman control. The pathway in their mind was some sort of Messiah figure that they believed God would raise up for them to be a king like David and defeat the enemies of God's people, restore his people to prominence, the nation to prominence in the world. So what that played out as were various leaders and various rebel factions rising up to make violent revolts against Rome time and time and time again. One of these groups was known as the Zealots because they were zealous to overthrow Rome. Another group was called the Sicarii because they carried daggers hidden in their clothing and they were ready to assassinate any Roman that they saw. One of Jesus' disciples, Simon, was from the group of the Zealots. Scholars believe that Judas Iscariot, the one that ultimately betrayed Jesus, 
was from the Sakari. You hear the similarity between Sakari and Iscariot. We see another one of these revolutionary groups in Scripture. Uh, when Jesus is on trial to be crucified, the crowd around him is offered that they can see him released. They can choose Jesus, choose his way, or they can choose another prisoner, a man named Barabbas, who is in prison for leading a violent revolt, a violent revolution against Rome. The crowd, in a very prophetic statement, chose Barabbas, chose the way that they were headed. Many of the Jewish people, when they saw Jesus' power and his miracles, they were expecting him to be that leader that God would raise up, that would restore their fortunes, that would lead them to victory against their enemies. And their vision of the way this would be done would be leading a revolt against Rome. But Jesus did not lead them in the manner they expected. He did lead them in a way out, but it was very different than what they were looking for. Remember, Jesus' way was not a way of violent revolution or rebel power. It was a way of love. Rather than revenge, it was a way of forgiveness. Rather than a way of greed, it was a way of generosity. Rather than a way that focused on amassing political leverage, it focused on caring for the least, the lost, and the last. One of the main teachings that Jesus brought was that the real problem with the world did not exist out there in some faraway ruler in this country that I just can't stand. That the real problem was in our hearts. That the real problem was sin, not out there, but in here, in us. And that unless that sin was dealt with, unless that sin was transformed, healed, uh, made, made new, brought to life, unless that was dealt with, even if the Jews got free of Rome, they would eventually end up back in captivity, either to themselves or to something much worse than Rome. Jesus was after transforming the heart. But the people in Jesus' day did not see this, or many did not see this. They didn't see that uh, this is where Jesus was going. This was the way of the kingdom that Jesus lived, the way of peace, the way of love, the way of new life. It's the kingdom that he preached. It's the kingdom he trained his disciples in. And this was the way, the message, and the vision that these towns that Jesus is speaking of as rejecting his disciples, this is the message, this is the vision that they are truly rejecting. This is why Jesus told his followers that when people reject them, they're really rejecting him. Their rejection of the message of the disciples was a rejection of the way of Jesus as being the true way that leads to life and saying life is found in other ways. For these people, life was found in violent revolution and political power. So fast forward to what happens next. These people don't respond to the way of Jesus and the violent revolts and the revolutionary zeal continue. They escalate into what historians call the First Jewish-Roman War, uh, which occurred from 66 to 73 AD. It was a major rebellion against the Roman Empire, and it resulted in the destruction of the Jewish temple. It resulted in the destruction of Jewish towns, the destruction and displacement of Jewish people, and the appropriation of Jewish land for Roman military usage. So how does what happened here reframe possibly for us Jesus' words and his warning? I think we begin to see clearly that these are not the words of a vengeful toddler, but they're the words of a loving parent. 
warning a child about the choices that they were making and the trajectory that those choices were taking them in. Their sin was ultimately going to destroy destroy them. It was going to eat them alive. Their sin was going to unravel their community. Their sin was going to unravel their faith. Their sin was going to unravel even their inheritance. Their sin was going to unravel their very lives. That's what sin does. It takes something that is, imagine a sweater, a woven sweater, and it begins to pull it apart and unravel it and transform it into something that it was never intended to be. Sin disintegrates life. Sin disintegrates life, and that's what's going on here. That's what these people, that's where they're headed, and Jesus is giving them, in a loving way, a word of warning about the danger and the destruction that was ahead of them. Another really interesting thing that we see here is that there were many miracles. The power of God, the person of Jesus, was at work in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And yet, even though God was there, even though God was on the move, even though God was doing things that would blow your mind, the people didn't respond to Him. Sometimes we can think, man, if God just gave me a vision, or if I just had a, 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 this crazy supernatural experience, or if this person just saw a miracle, then surely they would believe, and surely they would go the way of Jesus. We can think that, but what we see here is, although miracles and encounters are so important, God is doing those things all of the time. The question is, Are we going to respond? Are we going to choose the way of Jesus? Are we going to choose the way of life? Or are we going to be like Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum and hold so steadfastly to our own vision of life, hold so steadfastly to our own idols that we've put our hopes in that we walk straight into destruction? That's a really motivating image to think about. Maybe for you, maybe for me, our, our thing that we're holding on to is not violent revolution as being our hope. But I know, and I bet you do, that there are other things that we do hold on to and put our hope in instead of really putting our hope in the way of Jesus that brings life. So in conclusion, I hope that this time together has shifted your view of who God is. I hope that you see that when we come to a difficult passage of Scripture, that it's important for us to look beneath the surface and really dig in. And when we dig in, we see something beautiful. We see something that makes us actually love Jesus more. So I hope your your perception of God has changed. I hope your perception of Scripture has changed. I hope that you see these as words, as loving words from a loving parent trying to warn children about their destruction. And I hope that the Holy Spirit ministers to you and shows you and shows me maybe some places where we're holding on to some things, where we're holding on to some ways that we need to let go, that God would be issuing that same warning to us. I'd love to hear your feedback on this. Feel free to email us at hello at antiochdallas.org. And I want to remind you that we're going into a series all on the faithfulness of God. We'll be doing that up 
Until Easter, and I look forward to celebrating God's faithfulness alongside you.